Well, church, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning as we continue our thorough look at the book of Ephesians. And this has just been an incredible time for me, as I hope it has been for you. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning, and that outline will be our guide through God's Word this morning. You'll find the uh, answers on the screen behind me as we move through that outline. But this morning we, we find ourselves at the very heart, very middle of the, the letter to the Ephesians. And the challenge that we find there and that we find here in, in the middle of this book, in the heart of this book, will pierce us to our very heart. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that we will earnestly heed the poignant challenge of Scripture this morning. And that is to walk worthy in unity and humility and with boldness and strength. As I said, preaching through this letter continues to be an incredibly edifying discipline for me. And I think this morning that we'll find that to be the case for all of us as we move through, continue to move through this letter. But we are going to be challenged to see how our knowledge of God gained through our study of his word and, and our living it out in the midst of our brothers and sisters in the church, that our knowledge of God is intended to move us in response and in obedience. Our response is to be one that leads us to an increased dying to self and a deeper unity with the church for the ultimate purpose in giving God greater glory, that is where we will find our good. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word once again as we read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is our text this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Pray that as we continue to unpack the truths that we find therein this morning, that once again, I pray that you would pierce us to our core. And that we would not leave here the same, but we would leave here emboldened to live in eager obedience to your word and that that would move our feet uniformly in accordance with your word for your glory. And we know that that will be our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So, as we make the turn into that portion of the letter which Paul outlines how all of the doctrine which he has just espoused 
impacts our life. We've been reminding ourselves of this, this split, not really a split, but just how Paul has, has ordered this letter, that he's, he's given us all of this incredibly concise yet dense and thorough doctrine in chapters 1 through 3. And now as we move to chapters 4 through 6, we see how this doctrine moves our feet. How, how is it supposed to impact our lives and, and move us? So he appropriately begins this part of his letter, chapter 4, verse 1, with that all-familiar phrase of Bible reading. That is, therefore. So we see, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he bases this call, because that word, therefore, we always remind ourselves, go back, see what it's there for. And he bases this call on the content of verses 11 through 20 of chapter 3, which, as we have broken down over the last two weeks, we've seen is a summary of all that he has said up until that point. So looking at chapters 1 through 3, we see this repeated phrase time and again that gives us our focal point through this letter and for our lives and throughout all of history, that very focal point. We see chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So that phrase, in Christ, in him, through Christ, is repeated time and again. Not just in chapter 1, but as we see through chapters 1 through 3. That all of this doctrine in which Paul is pointing out how from the foundation of the world, God has been at work to make himself known and how Christ is the very fulfillment, the pinnacle of all that God has accomplished and purposed. We see that in Christ, Paul's message is that God's eternal purposes have been realized. And that's indeed what he says in verse 11 of chapter 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, or in, in Greek, epoiesen, that he has realized, that he has caused, that he has carried out, that he has brought to fruition in Christ. So that's our, our focal point for everything, but indeed that's the focal point that Paul provides here for this beginning statement of how this doctrine moves us in obedience. Because we see there that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12 of chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So in Christ, we can have all boldness, all confidence, all strength. And then as we saw last week, for this reason, I bow my knees. And then we go to verse 20 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore urge you to walk worthy 
This is where we get down to the truth of the matter. The gospel is not just about believing or saying the right things. But that what we believe and what we say must have an impact on what we are doing. And if there's no discernible difference between us and the world, then what are we doing? It's the idea here that if we are truly living with and actively pursuing the boldness, confidence, and strength of Christ that we see that He has given us, that He has promised us, that He has guaranteed for those who are in Him, then we will undoubtedly live lives that are in step with the gospel. Now, don't dismiss that other phrase that we see there. I, therefore, and then we usually just urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, right? We, we, we kind of skip over the commas there, that, that phrase, a prisoner for the Lord. Don't, don't dismiss that because it's not like the church needed a reminder for where Paul was. He's told them they know they are urgently, I'm sure, praying on his behalf, wanting to know what's going on. They know that he's in prison. So it's not like they need to be reminded of that fact. Now, he intentionally puts that little reminder there for the purpose of emphasizing this idea of walking worthy. Paul is saying, I'm here because of my eager obedience to God's call in Christ. I'm here because of God's ordering this work for his glory, for my good, from the foundation of the world. So church at Ephesus, are you walking in such a way that would have you join me here? Or are you walking in such a way that is keeping you comfortably at home? See, this is the challenge. To, to walk worthy means to walk in eager, total, complete obedience. Because this comes at the end of Paul's incredibly rich and dense, yet simultaneously compact doctrinal statement, as we've said. So in light of all these truths that he's expounded upon, he therefore then urges them to walk in a worthy manner of all that Christ has accomplished while remembering where it's landed him and knowing that it could very well cost them the same thing. See, church, sound doctrine moves our feet in eager obedience no matter the cost. Sound doctrine moves our feet in eager obedience no matter what it costs us. When we have a firm foundation like what is laid up for us in God's word, even a cursory grasp, even just the smallest amount of understanding of all the truths that are expounded for us in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians will move us to live a life of eager obedience. You see, our life is not that of a petulant child who is begrudgingly following the rules of a parent whose rule we cannot wait to escape. No, we realize those of us who have come to faith, true faith in Christ, see the overwhelmingly abundant life that awaits us in God's law. Because we know that when we live according to God's ways is where we find true freedom, true life. Not in pursuing and enslaving ourselves to the broken sinfulness of this world, but in finding freedom and living according to God's word. 
all the while having to continuously rely on the same grace that brought us to it to sustain our feeble efforts to live according to God's word. See, a worthy walk is one that eagerly seeks to obey God's law. And when we have realized our sinfulness in light of God's holiness and the grace of God to make himself known to us through his word, we will want nothing else than to stay in the light of his grace. See, a worthy walk is one that seeks God through his word with eager obedience. But what is our posture in this pursuit? What does that eager obedience move us to? How does that How is that actually lived out effectively in our lives? How does that impact the way that we treat the world, the way that we look at the world around us? Well, Paul kept writing. Verse 2. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, I I love how pride-crushing that list is right there. See, because the gospel is pride-crushing. The gospel makes us realize that there is nothing in and of ourselves that can accomplish true, lasting good. And so we have to crush our pride, crucify our pride, and submit ourselves to the work of Christ on the cross. See, we not too long ago came out of a month-long pagan celebration in which our culture bent the knee to celebrate sinful pride. And it can be said that pride is the original root of sin. That going back to that moment in the garden when the tempter knew just what question to ask so that it would cause Adam and Eve to question God's word, to question God's character, while simultaneously strengthening their own ego. To say that they knew better than God and could indeed be like God and that God had been hiding this from them. This was the tempter's plot. All they had to do was realize that God was lying about this fruit. You see, Paul could have easily stopped at that first one with all humility could have stopped there. That's challenging enough for us to consider living with all, total, the sum, the complete fullness of humility. For us to tackle number one in this list is hard enough on our own. He could have easily simply written with humility. He didn't even have to write all humility. He could have left it there, and that alone is hard enough for us to tackle. But he said, with all humility. He said he writes five indicators for the quality of one's walk. Now, if you're counting, not all five are in verse 2, all right? The the fifth one is in verse 3. So we're going to get to the fifth one. I can count. So the fifth is found in the next verse. There's a total of five here. So let's break those five down. So the first we see there is, with all humility. Paul uses this this word for humility three other times in the New Testament. And they're all in relation to one thing, unity. He uses this word three other times 
all in relation to our unity in Christ as his church. In order for us to truly live with eager obedience, in which we are wholeheartedly glad to walk in accordance with God's word, and to maintain and protect and promote unity, the number one person that we have to be ready to do battle with is not the brother or sister next to us or in front of us or behind us. The number one person that we have to be willing and ready each and every day to do battle with, to walk in humility and to live with eager obedience is ourselves. The next thing on the list, with all humility and gentleness, This too is in many other places used by Paul. However, the most prominent place that we see it is in Galatians. It's the most popular that we remember. It's it's in relation to the fruit of the Spirit. And then again in chapter 6 of Galatians where it's used in the context of restoring a brother that is caught in sin and to do so with gentleness. You see, we cannot allow ourselves to think that gentleness is synonymous with being timid or weak. So he's not saying to walk in all gentleness, simply allowing our brothers and our sisters to fester in their own sin. No, we can't allow ourselves to think that gentleness is synonymous with being timid or weak, rather that gentleness is showing self-control. That as we encourage, admonish, rebuke, love, challenge, push, pull our brothers and our sisters, that we do so with self-control, with gentleness. Next thing that he lists there is an indicator of a worthy walk. With patience. This word is used throughout the New Testament by Paul, Peter, James to point to Multiple different instances of patience and examples of patience. Patience of God towards sinners, the patience of Christ, or the patience which we are to walk in, put on, and display. In which then God's patience and the patience of Christ is used as our model for the patience that we are to live with. See, patience is an indicator of those who have been marked by the gospel. Indeed, in order for us to walk worthy and to walk in unity and to walk with eager obedience, our hearts must have been impacted, radically changed by the truth of the gospel. What's the next one? He gives us number four there on the list of walk-worthy indicators. Humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another in love. Or that is to say, enduring one another. Because our unity in Christ and our walk with him is not some unrealistic, idealistic, pie-in-the-sky picture in which we all walk in perfect peace 100% of the time, perfect peace with eager obedience to Christ, perfect peace with one another, in which we're all in full agreement 100% of the time? No. Why? Well, because he says to bear with one another, 
to endure one another. Rather, our unity is one in which we are bound by Christ and in Christ. We're bound by our love for Christ, which overflows then to our love for one another. That is to say, I love you too much in Christ to allow our differences to separate our fellowship. This is the idea of bearing with one another in love. The final indicator of a worthy walk comes then in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, unity is not passively come by or received passively, but it's actively maintained through reflecting Christ's likeness. Because our unity as his church was one on the cross of Christ. So therefore, it was not passively won, and it's not passively maintained. We're not the ones who created or achieved our unity. Rather, as we walk in eager obedience, we are by God's grace blessed with the unity of Christ and in Christ with one another. That he gives us brothers and sisters to walk through life with, to encourage, to admonish, to love on us or to love on them. And then we're given the charge to maintain that unity by reflecting the light of the cross to a dark and dying world. Paul's admonition here summarizes the end goal of living with all of these qualities with increasing measure. And that is to walk worthy is to walk with increasingly less regard for oneself. The quality of our walk is directly determined by our lack of self-regard. We are so selfish by nature. And that is why the way of the cross is so counter-cultural and goes against our very inclinations. And that is why the standard for how quality of a walk we are walking must be how much are we considering ourselves regularly or how much are we submitting ourselves first and foremost to God and then to our brother and sister. See, for the church to be unified, the same humility with which we come before the Father as repentant sinners is the same posture then with which we are to live toward one another. You see, we don't submit ourselves to Christ and and seek repentance for our sins and show all humility at the foot of the cross and then the moment from salvation, then we can just be as selfish as we want. No, that same humility that we show there is to then be carried out for a lifetime in which we are continuously submitting ourselves to the cross and then continuously submitting ourselves to one another. The same gentleness which God graces us with time and again is the very thing which we are to reflect to one another. 
the same patient forbearance which God has shown and continues to lovingly show us time and again is the same patient forbearing love which we are to show one another. Where we have been shown grace, we show grace as we eagerly maintain the unity won for us on the cross. You see, eager obedience, therefore, so as we are seeking to walk in eager obedience, and then we're seeking to see, level up, see if our quality, see what the quality of our walk is, and we're realizing that the quality of our walk is determined by our lack of self-regard, then we're seeing that eager obedience and an absence of self-regard till the soil of our heart for the cultivation of unity. So as we are eagerly walking, wholeheartedly walking in obedience to God's word, and we're growing less and less in regards of ourself, then our hearts, the soil of our hearts is tilled so that it's ready for unity to grow amongst all of us. Brooke and I, at one point in time, had a raised bed garden, and this was, at, was back when we lived in Marshall, and we did so good for one season, and then we had kids, and, <laughs> and I remember when I made that raised bed garden, I was so proud, you know, like I had the squares perfectly measured out, it was a big one, and I you know, had put the soil in there and then also peat moss and then this vermiculite stuff and this, this, this mixture was so airy and, and it was just perfect, right? It had all the nutrients. It was easy for roots to grow. See, I'd maintained it so well. And then we had kids and I wasn't able to maintain it. And Brooke wasn't able to maintain it. And so what happened? That soil that was so good for vegetables to grow and all these different things that we had then became great for weeds and all the other things that crept in. And then Brooke also planted mint in there against my wishes. And the mint that started over here popped up over here. And then the whole thing became a garden of mint. We had more mint than you could ever want. <laughs> now, the church at large has far too long taken a stand-back approach to unity. So we had to stand back from our approach to maintaining that garden. We had to because we had other responsibilities that came into our life that the Lord blessed us with, right? But for too long, the church has taken a stand back approach to unity. And here's what I mean by that. It's all too easy for us as humans to mistake a lack of conflict and tension and a lack of hard conversations as the presence of unity. We can think that, oh, well, nobody's fighting with each other. Nobody's having hard conversations. There's no tension amongst us, so everything's good. Rather than lovingly holding one another accountable for sin in our lives, we would remain silent for the sake of a false sense of unity. Because if we take that step-back approach in which we think, oh, everything must be good. It looks good. It feels good. And we think, I don't have to have that hard conversation. Or I don't need to have that hard conversation had with myself. That is when 
the maintenance of unity stops taking place and weeds begin to grow and the garden becomes overrun with mint. (laughs) See, the issue is that if sin is allowed to exist and selfishness is permissible, then it will rot the unity of the church from the inside out. And sometimes dismissing things for the sake of unity is allowing those things to happen. Because if that sin is allowed to fester, it will inevitably cause the downfall of a brother or sister. And if our brother and sister falls, then inevitably we fall too. Because if we think that we don't need to have the hard conversation with them, then we definitely think the hard conversation doesn't need to be had with us whenever the sin shows up in our hearts. So how do we heed this exhortation to maintain unity? Well, we use the same list here of a quality walk. Unity is maintained through humble accountability. You see, sometimes people mistake walking in humility means that I have no place to talk about sin in the life of another. But there is a way that we walk in humble accountability. When we're all seeking to live with increasing self-regard and we're all humbly submitting ourselves to the work of Christ on the cross and we're all kneeling on the level ground that is at the foot of the cross then we can humbly and rightly hold one another accountable. Because it's not saying in a self-righteous sense that says, get on my level, bro. But in a sense of loving humility says, you were walking so well. Who caused you to stumble? Join me back here at the foot of the cross. See, if we're living in humility... It is easy to call others to humility. We see this in Philippians 2. This is one of those other places where Paul uses the word humility. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, this is verse 1, Philippians 2, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he goes on to say, have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do we maintain unity? With humble accountability. And living with humble accountability requires... Gentle rebuke. Now allow me to qualify that statement of gentle rebuke with this. Although I've characterized it as gentle, we've already discussed that gentle does not mean timid or weak, but merely 
using self-control. And I've used this phrase, gentle rebuke, but it's still rebuke nonetheless. We must not allow the gentle part to become the overemphasis, which then makes the rebuke part fall off, in which we are just thinking that we just need to be gentle with each other. But humble accountability requires gentle rebuke. There's a way to rebuke with grace and love, and there's a way to rebuke with harsh arrogance. And we must take care that we are the kind of church who does so in a worthy manner and not the latter. We see this in Galatians 6. This is where we see the the continued idea of bearing with one another, right? But we see Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here it's talking about having hard conversations, but doing so with grace and in self-control, being gentle. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so as we maintain unity through humble accountability, which also requires gentle rebuke, This inevitably means in knowing that all of us are broken sinners that we have to exhibit gracious patience and loving toil in our relationships with one another. Gracious patience and loving toil. So we're just drawing these from that same list of indicators of a worthy walk. If we're walking worthy, we're going to treat each other with gracious patience, knowing that just as we've been shown much patience and grace by the Father in our own walk and in our own struggle with sin, that we too, as we are humbly holding brothers or sisters accountable and gently rebuking them when necessary, that we are then showing gracious patience and we are lovingly toiling with them. This is an ongoing, hard experience of doing life together in a broken and fallen world. Unity does not come natural in this world. Therefore, it is hard to maintain. And this provides us with what we see there in verse 3, that we are eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. It provides us with galvanizing peace, that as we live with this sense of continued accountability, if I know that my brother, if I slip up, that I have a brother or sister who is going to gently rebuke me and call me back to the foot of the cross and who is graciously going to patiently walk and and hard into the hard conversations and the hard work of turning away from sin, this provides all of us with a unifying, galvanizing peace that we can only have in Christ. As we continue reading there, we see what this produces. And we see the work of the Trinity and the unity in the Trinity reflected then in the church as we walk like this. 
when we walk with humble accountability, when we walk gently rebuking, when we show gracious patience and loving toil, and, and we have this live with galvanizing peace, then we as his church can reflect in our unity the unity of the Trinity. We see this here, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So verse 4 belongs to the spirit. There we go. Verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 5 belongs to the Son. Verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Verse 6 belongs to the Father. Eager obedience unifies us to properly reflect the glory of God so that as his church in our unity, we reflect the oneness of the Trinity and properly give God the greater glory. This is what it means to walk in a worthy manner of the calling which we have been called. Walk with eager obedience, wholeheartedly glad to live according to God's law. To walk in such a way as that the sound doctrine that we eagerly gain and, and learn from God's word moves our feet in obedience, and then to walk in such a way that we're walking with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another admonishing one another and that we are living with increasingly less self-regard. And this prepares our hearts for the good, hard work of maintaining unity. And this is what we have been called to, church. So let us do so gladly. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the unity won for us on the cross. I pray that if there be anyone here this morning that does not, has not submitted to that work, that you would appropriately and properly convict them of sin just as you have done all of us, move their hearts in repentance and move their feet to walk in obedience to your word. For those of us who had submitted to that work, who, who know the goodness of the gospel. Help us. Give us grace, Father, to walk with eager obedience, seeking to properly reflect the oneness of yourself in our unity with one another. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love and eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.